getting emotional. So how does that make you feel? February 23rd, 2022. The inspiration, teamwork. Without understanding how our feelings, thoughts, and behaviors work together, it's almost impossible to find our way back to ourselves and each other. Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart. I'm reading Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart now, and to me, whose relationship with my own emotions has been dismissive at best and actively antagonistic at worst, this cartographic peering into emotions laced with deep thinking about how the emotions feel, how they manifest, and what they mean is probably exactly what I need. I'm reminded of all the times my therapist said, where in your body do you feel that emotion? And I would be like, I don't know. Of course, all emotions are felt in the body. They are the result of chemical spikes our brain sends out, and it's such a wild system. Emotions seem like the source of irrationality. They make us do things, sometimes terrible things, that in the cold light of day, we might never consider. They make us say things we don't mean and impulsively order an entire manicure set during a period when we are about to move, and the goal is to get rid of shit. Anyway. The point is that emotions don't make sense until you see them as a mode of connection, until you realize that without emotions, we're just individuals bopping about the universe. But with them, we are community. While there is space in human experience for those of us who work best alone, we all survive only because we are made to function as a team and our emotions, the source of our vulnerability, are the glue that creates community. The Fat Orange Cat. So how does that make you feel? In your writing, tell me your character is sad without telling me they are sad. How does sadness feel? Where in the body does it manifest? What does it make your character do? Are you imagining them eating ice cream and watching Real Housewives? Take a pause there. That's the cultural shorthand, and it's not how everyone experiences sadness. One character might push sadness away and behave happiness they don't genuinely feel in order to wash away the thing they don't want to acknowledge or experience. Another character might embrace the sadness or use it to fuel their art. Another might seek out the one person they know will sit with them in their sadness without trying to make it better. And the character who can do that who can sit in sadness and not try to fix it? That's a very special character indeed. The trope, love potion. Of all the emotions we feel that may lead us into irrationality and destruction, it's love. I think the problem with this is that there are so many kinds of love and yet, we only have the one word. There's the love a parent feels for a child, which is different from a romantic love, which is different from the love a writer might feel for her cute little MacBook with its clicky clacky keys that respond so elegantly to her dancing fingers as she gets her ideas down at the last minute for her newsletter due the next day. Anyway, the point is, love is such a tiny, insufficient word for what might be the most powerful and complex of all emotions. We most often associate it with romance, which is love at possibly its most dangerous. So when we talk about love potions, we're talking about something which will make someone do, say, and feel things that make them both extremely dangerous and unbearably vulnerable at the same time. The love potion is a quirky trope, often used in comedic movies or television episodes where we reset at the end and all is supposed to just be well afterward. We might get a nod toward the complete violation of free will, but usually it's just a nod. Imagine using the love potion trope in a dark story. 
Something as sinister as a love potion requires darkness in order to be fully explored. That might be kind of fun, actually. Permission slip. Is it okay to... I don't have a question this week, so I'm trying to think of alternative modules I can cycle in here when there aren't any questions. Today, I'm going to do permission slips, as many of the questions I get asked are of that variety. Is it okay to base a character on someone I know? Is it okay to only write when I feel like it instead of every day? Is it okay to take inspiration from existing stories or characters? And of course, y'all know my answer is almost always yes. Often, it's a yes with some boundaries, but the bottom line is, tell your story. If you need to fix or change something, you can do that on the back end. Even if you screw something up, you'll learn something from the screw up. Perfectionism is a trauma response. Stop being afraid of making mistakes. Mistakes are your friend. Sometimes they can be the perfect teacher at the perfect time. The practical. Accepting the rubber stamp. I've been watching Frasier lately as my absent-minded entertainment, and it's been fun. While farce is not a particular favorite of mine, when someone does it really well, I enjoy it, and Frasier pretty much elevated the form. That said, I am, once again, shocked and horrified in a revisit of something from the 90s that I found to be harmless fun on my first run through, only to discover that it is so gross. Niles' obsession and constant objectification of Daphne is disturbing to say the least, but I look past it because I love David Hyde Pierce and Jane Leaves, and I can acknowledge what is wrong with something while at the same time enjoying it in the way it was intended. Sometimes I can do that. Sometimes not. There are some things like 16 Candles that are so offensive that I cannot enjoy them ever again. But Frasier doesn't cross that line for me. I can see what they did with Niles, which was dangerous and entitled and completely inappropriate, and revise it in my head to be what they intended, sweet and harmless and only damaging to Niles. You might wonder why Frasier, who is more offensive on a lot of levels, doesn't bother me as much as a character, and it's simply because his grossness is clearly acknowledged as such. I'm trying to think of a situation where Frasier wasn't punished by the text for his pomposity and callousness, and I can't think of a clear example where he was allowed to get away with it. Yes, he is still loved and accepted by his family, but there is never a moment where we pretend he is in a total mess of a human. But Niles? We rubber stamp Niles hard. Frasier disapproves of his behavior, but we disapprove of Frasier, so it doesn't really count. If anything, Frasier's disapproval is meant to make us see Frasier as a judgmental fuss budget, while Niles gets, textually, a total pass. The text itself does not make Niles suffer for his obsession with Daphne. If anything, the text rewards him for it. The downtrodden, forgotten nerd wins the woman in the end. It becomes palatable only because, when he's not being gross, Niles is kind and caring and strong and smart, and more often than not, honorable. I can completely understand why someone wouldn't care for it. I understand why Ian tapped out in the first season. But it's still fun for me, and I enjoy it enough to play it in the background while I do other things. After all, Roz and Martin and Eddie are also part of this band of misfits. Nothing is ever just one thing. Hell in a handbasket. I'm putting ribbons on mine. February 26, 2022. Dear writer, how are you feeling? This week feels particularly heavy. 
I'm not going to list it all here. You know what's going on if you've been on social media or reading the news. And if you've stayed off for a reason, I'm not going to bust into your inbox and carry it to you. Suffice it to say, it's been a rough few, well, months, years, decades. So in this week's letter, I'm just going to talk to you about hope. If you're not in the mood for it, if you feel like it minimizes the suffering that's going on out there, then I'm giving you the warning bell so you can nope out now. If you could use a little cheering up, keep reading. I grew up as a kid who could only protect yourself from abuse by anticipating and catering to the moods of the people around me. Are you feeling hopeful yet? Hang in there. It gets better. Anyway, that's led to me being the kind of person who always, no matter what the situation, has to make the people around me happy. I must cheer them up, show them the bright side, fix the problem, make it all okay. This is how my company came to be named Chipperish Media, a portmanteau of chipper and gibberish, which is probably the most astute description of me in a nutshell. Let me tell you, it's been a challenge to exude chipperish in recent years. It feels like the entire world has been slowly falling into a pit since the mid-90s or so, when American politics started to become divided in a shameless, cynical way fueled by a new media savvy that made some people in power realize that they could just lie about shit, and people would know they were lying, and could pull up video evidence that they were lying, and it still wouldn't matter. It seems like we've been stuck in an endless downward spiral ever since, with things getting worse and worse until Columbine and Citizens United and Trump and Brexit and the murder of George Floyd, or any number of black people we just started to care at Floyd, and the systematic dismantling of bodily autonomy rights and COVID in the Ukraine and... Sorry, I said I wasn't going to talk about the specific terrible things, didn't I? I'm sorry, I suck. Anyway, here's the secret. Everything seems like it's just getting worse and worse and worse but it's not. It was always this bad. Are you feeling better yet? Hang on. It was always this bad. Always. It's just that we weren't told about it because the bad things were happening to the poor and the non-white and the non-American and the non-Western. And we never heard from their perspectives because we didn't care. Oh, ouch. Yeah, that stings a little bit for me and my ilk, doesn't it? I can hear some of you out there saying, Lonnie, this was supposed to be hopeful and you're not making me feel hopeful, okay? And yes, I get it. Hope is on the way, I promise. As a matter of fact, it's here. People say the internet is the downfall of the world as we know it, and maybe it is. But maybe the world as we knew it wasn't so goddamn great after all. Voices outside of the mainstream Western media are finally able to be heard because of the internet. Those of us who lived within a privileged little bubble have been slowly introduced over the last 20 years or so to voices outside of our privileged little bubble. And that has brought on some pretty harsh existential dread, with the last five or so years being probably the worst of it. But at least now we know. It's better to know. You can't fight something you don't acknowledge as being real and present. We know more about the realities of the world than we ever have. That means we can do something about them. And yeah, it's going to be scary. The world is falling into instability, and that means a lot of stupid, needless suffering. All of that is true. But do not forget that the stupid, needless suffering was always happening. More of us are just aware of it now, which means we can finally do something about it. And that's where the hope comes in. I have hope. Maybe it's foolish and naive, but I have it. I know that we're in dark times, but I also believe that the human soul leans toward goodness. And I believe that more of us than not will lean toward goodness. 
and that eventually the instability caused by disruptions of the current power structures, which have been incredibly destructive, will fade into a new world that is more connected and cooperative than it has ever been. More now than ever, I've had the words of Margaret Mead bouncing around in my head. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I believe that's true. But I also know that no one ever changed anything without hope. So hold on to yours. It's your most powerful weapon in this fight. Everything else.